Hey everyone, it's Mark Dilcom with Radical Love Live. And Kelly Wilson, also with Radical Love Live. So Kelly, let me ask you, what are we going to talk about today? It's the morning after our premiere event last night at the uh-huh. Cathedral St. John the Divine. Um, it was a really wonderful, beautiful event. We're really pleased that so many people came. Um, and we have our guests from the event last night here in the studio with us today. Yes, indeed. So we've got uh, David Gunger from The Brilliance here, John Thetanamil from Union Theological Seminary, and Maria French, who is now the uh, founder of H&Co. So um, first off, what we'd like to do is reflect a little bit on um, last night's event. And, you know, all of you were there and, and in different roles, but we all had, we all were experiencing it for the first time, this, this first event. Yeah, so I'm going to start off asking each of you this question. Describe in your own words what happened last night at Radical Love Live. Well, something fabulous and amazing, certainly. In part of my talk, I spoke to the audience about how very brave and courageous they were for showing up that night and just being a part of the conversation and being open to, you know, these new spaces that are being opened up for spiritual dialogue. And, of course, I applauded the two of you for launching this project, which is going to be the first of many nights like this where we invite people in a very sort of ecumenical way to come together to discuss some things that people don't always feel safe to discuss. They don't always feel at liberty to discuss. And I'm not even sure that they can always articulate what they're feeling. And so what these events do is kind of give words and validation and articulation to tension, I think, that people have been feeling for a very long time, even hurt and and trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I love about what you guys are doing and what happened last night, because of what I do full time, I'm in conversations all the time with um, people who have been hurt by church, who have walked away. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of unhealed brokenness. And a lot of times people like to just sort of sit around and be bitter and complain. And, and they have every right to do so. But I'm always interested in the next step in the conversation and how do we heal this and how do we find new paths forward and how do we create new language and just how are we moving forward into the future in really constructive and new and innovative ways. John, what was your experience from last night? An event of, of yesterday's sort is so powerful because one feels that uh, the genuineness of the search of those in attendance, of both of you as question askers. And I think sometimes people like me who are theologians are understood to be the people who have the answers, Mm -hmm. somehow ready to dispose Mm -hmm. once the question is presented. And this is actually even a very bad way of understanding uh, Paul Tillich's method of correlation. The world asks questions and the church uh, has the answers. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me that no one has the answers, even those who are informed by a deep tradition, because the tradition is always being born again, not just people, (laughs) at its best, by genuinely hearing what the questions are and Mm -hmm. and then formulating an answer in a kind of musical resonance with the vast legacy of the tradition. So even when I'm speaking just as a Christian theologian, not as a, a hyphenated Buddhist Christian or the like, I'm far less certain than Mm -hmm. uh, many people think I ought to be about what those answers are. So to be in a space where the questions themselves are honored Mm -hmm. so that I can enter into experiments in new ways of speaking the tradition is is a profound blessing. Indeed. Thanks, John. So, David, the brilliance, how was your experience last night? Thank you. Well, first of all, that was my first time in that space, and the space is overwhelming Mm -hmm. with beauty and 
Uh, I live here in the city, but that was my first time at the cathedral. And I brought my family because we couldn't find a babysitter. Mm-hmm. I love that they were there. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, but that was you know, awesome. But do you know what? It was very wonderful and special for us to walk in and see the cathedral through the eyes of a child. Mm-hmm. And I loved what, what you spoke about because as a band, part of our ethos is built on, on the ideas that you were so eloquently speaking about. So, for instance, even when you're talking about issues of faith and ideas like certainty. If you have certainty, uh, you can't have faith because for faith to be there, there has to be some form of doubt or at least humility. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you look at the mountain and say, I need this to move, well, there's got to be part of you that doubts that it actually can move because you're putting your trust in something else, right? Wow. So <laughs> the idea of humility that was there embodied by both of you last night was wonderful for us because that's what our music is all about. It's trying to lead people not to an answer but to a question. And oftentimes when you're trying to create something and you, you bring in different musical influences, what you're trying to get within diversity of different musicians and community is uh, an idea of an edge effect where you can have two different you know, ecospheres kind of joining together. And then in that space, there's all types of crazy vegetation and growth. There was a comment made to Kelly and me uh, a couple of weeks ago by a supporter of ours. And he asked us, we're doing this inside the world's largest cathedral, St. John the Divine, of all buildings. And he said, how do you expect for people that do not connect to that building or are scared of that building to come into that space. I had this conversation with a few people last night. It was such a paradox uh, (laughs) to be there because we're having these conversations because in some ways, as I alluded to in my talk, the present and the future has been a bit blown to bits by the empty promises of institution and so on and so forth. And here we are, as you said, in the world's largest cathedral trying to have these conversations about what is next. And we have all of these suspicions that what's next is not happening inside (laughs) buildings like perhaps the one we were in, if I may say i mean certainly there are important things happening there but again like you said there are so many people who would like never even walk into um, a structure like that or just even a, a church building that isn't a cathedral increasingly cathedrals in major cities have and rightly assumed the function of being one of the key places for intellectual and cultural life period not just christian life and mm-hmm. i think this cathedral lives out that legacy And I'm mindful, and I think it's something we have to teach people, that the Dalai Lama has spoken there, that Elie Wiesel has spoken there, that this is not just a Christian space. So that that long legacy of having it be a place for inquiry Mm -hmm. and religious diversity is part of the history of that building. And if people don't know that, then Mm -hmm. they can't quite be sure that it's a safe space. But insofar as that word gets out, I think it can be a space and welcoming place. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah. I, with my story, you. you know, one of the first things that we said up there as I came up there and I said, I'm a lifelong Christian. And I was hoping that wasn't the thing, that, like the lightning rod that was going to, uh, you know, make people go on for that. But then you nuanced it, and that was very yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, a church that does not honor the questions and the searching of the world deserves no attention and respect from that world. Mm-hmm. Drop yeah. the mic right there. <laughs> right. And insofar as we did that, uh, we honored the genuine search and, mm-hmm. and the church ought to ought to be doing that david anytime you're doing anything creative 
a lot of times the medium becomes the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're w- walking into that yeah. enormous space. Yeah. And I hope this isn't offensive, but that that building can feel a bit like a tomb. I mean, it's gorgeous, but it also is, wow, it can kind of uh, right. swallow you whole yeah. with yeah. your imagination. And there are there are plenty of people buried there as yeah. well. There's a crypt <laughs> downstairs. And, yeah. and I, I guess when you're talking about themes like this, the idea of like you are meeting in this space that, even though it's amazing and beautiful, it does cast a giant shadow. And one of those shadows is it is not welcoming. <laughs> like, okay. Meaning you can have as many greeters at the door as you want, but right when you walk in and you're in a giant space, you feel very small, mm-hmm. right? So it's hard to be seen. So you all had the intention of seeing people yeah. and afterwards, and that's why I'd be like, yes and no. So the space provides it. But the hard thing, and this is where I'd be like, this is the beautiful thing to me and the paradox would be my favorite type of mystical theology would if you were, and I'm sitting next to a theologian, so I'm I, two theologians, I, I would say, and I'll paraphrase this, is like Lasky's theology of darkness, where creature is made and somehow steps in the light of God, but then recoils, and yeah. so God creates darkness so that creature can go to the dark. Yeah. And then somehow the incarnation is light always rushing towards the darkness. And so this idea of shadow of you all being in a spot where you know there's an intentional shadow there. Yeah. But light will always move from within the darkness. And that's the spot where you go, I am comfortable moving towards the dark. Because that's where you find the divine. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Another mic drop. Another mic drop, yeah. Okay. Although the sound off in me won't let anybody actually drop a mic. Okay. We're going to a space where we know it's going to be uncomfortable. Not just for the, the people that would not come into that building or who would not consider themselves follower of any particular faith, but we're going on the other side to people that are in clergy or theologians. And we have some in our family, just in the Christian family, that see things a lot differently than we do. I want to make one observation. To be welcoming, you don't have to be comforting. I think within spirituality, one of the myths of 21st century spirituality is that it should always feel, that you should always have this, oh, it felt warm, it felt great, it felt welcoming, it felt, and like we we're looking just for feelings. I grew up in a household where my dad would say, if you ever want to get close to God, you have to learn how to be bored. And you have to learn how to like get past the, oh my gosh, this is uncomfortable. Lean mm-hmm. into that. So what was amazing to me was you set up a, like even within the, um, the mindset of, of entering the practice of, on one end, I could call it mindfulness. I could call it meditation. I could also call it prayer. Totally. Um, you had many avenues where people could enter and engage. And it's uncomfortable for everyone doing it. That's the, the, the commonality is the uncomfortableness of being like, I have to stop talking right now. I'm going to let you guide me. I'm going to let, <laughs> right? There's all these things where I'm letting go. Yeah. Yeah, I'm right. letting go. Yeah. And that's the commonality thing. So I think for a conservative there was space to let go. The question becomes is how much do you want people to be able to respond? People learn from being able to ask questions back and wrestle with things. Mm -hmm. They don't learn from preaching. So you can have a great idea, but until I can wrestle with that idea. So you named a lot of truths that were there. For instance, um, Jerry Falwell, you talked about white nationalism and you talked about patriarchy, which both have valid critique and actually it needs to be said. But then there are also within that nuance where you're going to go, yeah, but there are some people that they are handed this tradition or yeah. grow mm-hmm. up in this tradition yes. Yes. where they they would say, no, 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 no. It's not about white nationalism because there are mm-hmm. a lot of 
African Americans within yeah. that tradition. Yeah. Right, right. That now I am not saying that those shadows don't exist. Right. You named a shadow. The hard thing is there's nuance to every conversation and it feels really great to be on stage and be like we are going to be a place of non-judgment. The only p- people that we judge are those who judge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the the thing that's very easy coming from a more this is a more liberal and I say that with graciousness of yep. I like it. Mm-hmm. But fundamentalism goes to the right and to the left. And to the left, mm. it gets Absolutely. just as ugly of going, yeah. there's yeah. no place of an on-ramp. Of, <laughs> and it goes totally to what do you think, not how do you live. One of the things that I'm learning this year, and why I loved your thing on desire, is that for me, my own spirituality is the quest of living a life of integrity. And the hard thing is, we are constantly not living that life of integrity. So I can say, like I'll give an example, I am totally all about right now being like, how do I live my life where I name the truth of global warming? I name the truth of what is happening within creation. And yet I say that, I have four children which is terrible for the world. <laughs> I not only have that, I fly for a living. Tomorrow I'm flying to LA. Later on I'm going to Paris this year and I'm going to Australia this year. Guess what? I am the biggest hypocrite. Even though I think I have an intention of doing good, my life is at odds with that intention. So my quest for spirituality is trying to go, how can I live a life of integrity within that? Mm-hmm. So within mm-hmm. a space that is welcoming, now I say, you named truths, but what are the realities in which it's not in, there's not integrity there? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I would totally agree with everything you said. <laughs> and like, just so we're clear, I mean, I had such a short time last night. There was yeah. so much more I wanted to say. Um, but I mean, I definitely grew up evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic. So I'm, you know, several y- good, a good several years out of that. And it's like several years in dog years because, <laughs> you know, I've just gone like... Uh, I, I think, you know, really kind of theologically expedited, I suppose, in, in those years. But um, I think that I would say the same thing. You know, uh, we're always harping on the right. And I certainly talked about the religious right last night because I don't think, as I said, Christianity can fully be examined in our present day without looking at some of these events that happened. And it just so happens the religious right and how they came to power and what happened is actually a super important thing um, when considering those things at the moment. But I would say the same thing. Um, there's fundamental this fundamentalism on the left side and the, the left is just as entrenched both in religion and politics and all of that. And yeah. so for me, you know, I think sometimes people hear me speak and they're like, okay, so you went from right to left. No, I'm actually, I'm not on either side because that's just a ping pong match going back and forth and they're just so incredibly reactionary to each other and nothing new actually gets produced. What I'm hoping to do and what I'm hoping uh, you know others will do is transcend that spectrum on on some reality because if you look at it and I talked a tiny bit about post theism last night just in terms of identifying with the thought but it's a spectrum of theism the evangelicals are super solid on the story and like offering community but I think the theology is old and dusty and there's really not a lot new being done there and then if you look at kind of liberal mainline they are doing amazing kind of social justice things but I think the story is not solid at all and I think it's gotten really wishy-washy and we just kind of sit around and sing kumbaya and nobody really knows what we're living for. (laughs) I I don't want to say across the board there is no good being done. I think there's lots of good being done but I think we have got to forge new ways. 
so yeah, I just kind of wanted to respond to that because I I don't want you to think that I'm just about speaking uh-huh. what I <laughs> see as truth or whatever. Not, but but I agree, it's super difficult. In fact, I was talking with John before we went on last night, and because we were talking about capitalism, I spoke briefly about it. He spoke a ton about it, and I just looked at him and I said, John, I, I'm dripping in capitalism. Like I'm so sorry. You must be looking at me with my bag and my coat and. Yeah, there's this incredible tension that we're always living in. That's that's powerful because it's self-awareness and it's owning up to it, right? If anything else, it goes right to what David said. In of itself, the hypocrisy, but yet learning to embrace the hypocrisy and yet still push forward, you know, and, and, and get in touch with their humanity. We're all a part of this, right? But yet in the midst of this, we're still trying to carry out our spirituality and and explore. And as you said, it's more than just a kumbaya. Mm I, I use that word. Do you? It's, yes, because it's like, it's great to say we're all going to do great things, and then nothing really gets done. We are at a point where action is necessary. I think we have so much propositionalism in theological circles and in Protestant circles in particular. Belief, belief, belief. What do you believe? And mm. among the things you uh, find when you study other religious traditions is that that's not the first question that's being asked. So mm. that's partly why I begin with, what do you desire? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it feels to me that that gets us closer to the body, closer to practice, and closer to the ways in which our convictions actually line up or don't with our longings. And so my des- my desire is, is to true my desire, uh, mm-hmm. and that's not accomplished instantaneously. Mm-hmm. It, it takes spiritual discipline, and it, it takes commitment, and it requires recognizing that I'm constantly falling short. Right. So yeah. I, I wanted to begin there for, for just those reasons. Yeah. We have a couple of questions that we got from the audience last yeah. night that are related to some of the things that we're, that we're talking about. These people must have had some very quick thumbs because the, the, <laughs> there's a lot of preamble to the question, which I love. The, the question is, one of the things that was spoken about last night was about spirituality not being solitary. Liturgy is not solitary, and it is not specifically religious. The secular liturgies, such as sports events, big movie releases, protests, are everywhere. Even some experiences done in isolation, like watching Game of Thrones, is shared right. experience. Can you talk about the intersection of spirituality and liturgy, religious and not, and whether that is fertile space for non-coercive relationship building between nuns and the faithful? That is a fantastic is. question. Wow. And a pretty long text. Too. Yeah. No, one doesn't usually get texts of such sophistication. But it's true. It's true that we inhabit multiple narrative universes. I mean, currently, I am swimming in the Star Trek universe. (laughs) (laughs) Do you Uh, have the channel? That's right. Uh, Picard came out this this last week. And uh, before that, I've been immersed in in the relatively new series, Discovery. Mm -hmm. I like it. I've been watching it. It's good. Yeah. And in season two, theological questions are front-loaded throughout and it's astonishing how explicit it is in in bringing theologians to bear and uh, even suggesting that, you know, questions as to whether any sufficiently advanced species would be encountered as divinity mm-hmm. by those in, uh, in some less advanced species. I mean, these kinds of questions are, interro- are, are fantastic. But I'm more interested in the ways in which deeply humane characters, I think, make me kinder. And this gets to the liturgical 
dimension of that question, right? Mm -hmm. Part of why discovery works on me the way it does is that these are flawed human characters who are explicitly trying to live lives of integrity. And to see that depicted faithfully on, the, on what is sometimes called the boob tube uh, challenges <laughs> that depiction of the entire medium as somehow, you know, fraud and compromised. So, yeah, I think we do constantly live in multiple narrative universes and, and, and are also being formed by multiple kinds of liturgy. And I do think that that's, that is a fertile place for conversation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's this trend, actually, of evangelicals and progressive evangelicals and post-evangelicals moving to more, like, liturgical spaces. And mm -hmm. it's so attractive to evangelicals because a lot of times they go to church and evangelical churches are famous for pastors just kind of giving their own commentary on whatever they think the Bible says and whatever. And, again, as I said earlier, a bit low on theology or can be, again— I'm not saying across the board with evangelical churches. I'm just saying kind of the word on the street and mm -hmm. experience and all of that. Um, so I think the liturgy gives some sense of grounding and some sense of I'm connected to something bigger than just what the pastor saying. This is historically validated. This is kind of um, made it through the test of time. And this is something that has been sanctioned by, uh, you know, a denomination or a saint or hundreds of years of saying it or whatever it is. And so there's the sense of connectivity and groundedness. But I think that after a while, there is still something that will be missing there. And I think maybe the a bit of adrenaline or the bit of a motivation is something new that seems to fit for the time. But I would still argue that picking up something like that isn't going to sustain for the long haul. I still think that things need to be innovated and made new. And then the next question, of course, is like, well, how would you innovate? And what do you think should be made new? That's not a question for me. That's a question for whatever community is engaging that particular practice. And even using the word like liturgy, I mean, before I was evangelical, I grew up Catholic. So for me, I'm thinking my Catholic experience of liturgy, it feels old and dusty and not a lot of life there. And I think when we use old theological words like liturgy, talk about welcoming and hospitality, I think some will just go the other way. Because that means something to people, liturgy, and sometimes it's really positive and sometimes it's really not positive. <laughs> you know, we have to kind of weigh, weigh all that in the balance and know who we're speaking to and so on and so forth. She would be suspicious of my people. <laughs> I'm not suspicious no, of people. A, I'm suspicious a, of mechanisms, yeah. David. Uh, the thing that I would say a critique of would be if you're only using liturgy as a tool, mm -hmm. meaning like historical liturgy, you're going to probably make it an object and objectify it, and you will obje objectify God. The big change that people are longing for is a, is a sacramental theology, a mystical theology of union. Many evangelicals, have a heart, the, the basis of relationship with God. The theology of the threefold path of spirituality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you'd be like, okay, you start off, you're building and it's good. In the Jewish tradition, you go, as a child, you, you teach your kids Proverbs. When they're in their adolescence, you get them to read Ecclesiastes. And when they're an adult, they read Song of Solomon. This idea of you build, you deconstruct, and you've got yeah. some kind of reconstruction that eventually you lead to union with mm -hmm. God. Yeah. So in all orthodox theology, you are moving towards union with the divine. I think the union piece, the reason why so many evangelicals long for mystical theology is because the very start of their relationship 
is that idea of union with God. Mm -hmm. And so they need a framework that the way that you set up yesterday is you gave me boundaries. You gave me a framework to go, if I'm going to talk about this, I have to give you definitions or a framework for what I mean. Anytime you're creating anything, if there are no boundaries, we don't know how to have vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to have mm -hmm. those things. And so I, I kind of go, okay, what we're longing for in the evangelical church is boundaries. We're actually longing for a story that's, we don't just make up things every week. It's handed down through mm -hmm. the tradition. Mm -hmm. It's not something mm -hmm. that I make up. The thing that we miss and that you kind of get is this way of, well, what's the epistemology or the ecclesiology where I'm going like, who am I tied to that can actually critique this? And not only critique this, but when you speak in at least the Episcopal church, there is a hierarchy, which can be bad, but it can have a shadow, but it also can be beautiful to be like, I need to submit. Mm -hmm. I need to do Evangelicals do not know how to submit. We do not know how to make accountability. Accountability. <laughs> yeah. So when you say that, you warn of that. I hear that wow. as like my desire, and I think most evangelicals desire. Now I'm. I would agree with you. I'm from like post. I can say post evangelical. <laughs> I, I get that. But I think that they're drawn towards that because it's the natural process of going. I have this thing, and now there's illumination that comes or deconstruction, mm -hmm. and most people get stuck in that. But yeah. when you can reimagine. All of a sudden, you're reclaiming from within. And that's where I go, I don't know. The most creative things that I see liturgically are usually people that go, so for instance, I know an amazing sacramental um, theologian that is just bonkers amazing. And he comes from the Pentecostal tradition. I'm like, why are you still Pentecostal? He goes, because this is who I am from, and I need to not just run away from this. How are they going to change or evolve in thought if I'm just constantly running from my my background my tradition and that's the hard thing it's it's interesting that <laughs> the burden of being post yeah. something that's we've talked about this we before have, and because because i define myself as post-evangelical and that burden of being post of always like pushing that away is also work so i mm -hmm. i think in the last couple of years i probably started to find more connections between who i was and what i did believe and what i believe now just to acknowledge all of myself yeah. rather than having to parse myself out and be like i can't think that anymore i can't have that anymore because there are parts of that like that notion of relationship with the divine that are not as evident in liturgical worship. One of the things I like about liturgical worship, though, is there is there's a process to go through even when I don't believe it. I say the creed <laughs> even on the days that I don't believe it, and it somehow there's fuel in that. And that's okay. But yes. it becomes a mix of all those things. Yep. So I, I become a little bit more fluid in yep. allowing myself to also be what I was while I'm being what I'm becoming. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. can I, uh, this is going to go back to what he was saying about desires. Yeah. And James, James K.A. Smith has a full book on this specifically around liturgy that's brilliant. But one of the things that saved my own imagination towards faith was as an evangelical, you are taught relationship, but you're only taught through the friendship of Jesus Christ or love of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of good Trinitarian theology, mm -hmm. which is fully relational, which says to be human is to be connected. Yes. yes. And so for me, when you when you talk about like good liturgy, I go it, it constantly brings me back to relationship and it constantly brings me back to what is my desire yeah. and then reforms that desire. 
reshapes it. That's powerful. John? I'm skeptical about the way people tell me that there's a single way to be <laughs> traditional mm-hmm. or, or Christian. That when any time someone says the Christian story, there's something in me starts recoiling. Mm-hmm. Because I'm aware of 2,000 years of Christianity East and West, and uh, including being brought up as an Indian Christian from the Martoma Church. So the provinciality of so much so-called Christian talk mm-hmm. with the prefix the in it mm-hmm. just bugs me. <laughs> but I also hear the wisdom in what David is saying, right? When you know the tradition to be capacious, really and truly capacious, you don't have to be reactive to the whole thing because you don't even know enough to be reactive to the whole thing. There's just too much there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even our reactivities are often provincial. Uh, within the Within the tradition, I mean, earlier before we started speaking, I said that, you know, your atheism is only as good as the theism you're rejecting. (laughs) You reject a trivial theism and you get a trivial atheism. But it's also true that every Christianity that that, that is revisionary in character, that merely rejects some truly provincial and small-minded account of itself, will be similarly compromised. So Mm. if you know the tradition in some depth, you don't have to fight against it all the time. If you know your Meister Eckhart mm-hmm. and your Pseudo Dionysius, you know <laughs> there is stuff in this tradition you will never equal in your entire life. Right. There is exquisite beauty. And that deep sense of becoming traditioned is something we're actually failing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that renders us incredibly vulnerable historically to being hijacked mm-hmm. I mean, in, in all kinds of ways. Claims are made upon our desiring in the direction of idolatrous nationalism. Totally. totally. Um, and all manner of other kinds of hijacking. Mm-hmm. And part of what we have to do is to introduce the capaciousness of the tradition for those who are interested. Absolutely. Yeah. It so. makes, uh, just on that, I, I, I lean on something that the divine is incomprehensible. And that works for me because I've just given myself over to that. I will never fully understand. I, I just can't. And so, therefore, I don't worry about it. And I, and I just let that envelop me. So, I don't know if that's where my vulnerability comes out of that or just the lack of knowledge. You know, just whatever. It works for me. But when I quit, try, when I quit trying to ask those kinds of questions, what is God? Or what is it not? Or anything else in that space. And just simply let my heart lead me. And know, as you said, as, as humans, we're called to community and what feels right, just like what we're doing with this project. That's what I let guide me. And the answers will come as they come. When also the, the mechanisms of how we are reconciled to the divine are equally incomprehensible. I mean, I understand it through the lens of, of the crucifixion and the, um, what I've taught, what I've been taught through that tradition. But I believe that the divine wants to reconcile the divine self with everyone in the world. And even Christianity teaches that. And I believe that there are a number of different mechanisms for that in many cultures that I don't understand. And I try not to uh, hold on to it. Uh, I saw a a picture of a church sign that I liked that said, love them all and let God sort them out. 
And that's sort of how I approach it um, because, you know, I have a Christianity that I hold on to but want to also interact with other cultures with um, with love and, and give them dignity as well because I don't know it all. So we're kind of coming to the end of time. Is there another question? The end to of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that going to the time. end of our in that case, time. I'm going to go back to styrofoam cups. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to feel bad about how many paper towels we use. Um, one of the things that came up a couple times last night, you know, we're talking about materialism and capitalism and how our desires for things are, are shaping us. That across the religious spectrum, there's ways that people handle capital and money that turn people off that one of the things that turns people away from churches sometimes is the way that they use money. And that can be a megachurch pastor in a sports car, or it can be a progressive writer who's now doing corporate conferences somewhere. And it, you know, it can be across the spectrum. But if we're going to innovate spirituality, it's going to take dedicated people who use their time. And we're all around this table sort of in the spirituality business. <laughs> How do we do that in a way that's that, that navigates this area of capitalism and materialism in a way that's true and authentic and, if I might say it, good? <laughs> Such a huge question. Right? As <laughs> I'm saying, it's as much for me as it is yeah. for yeah. those listening. But for you know, people who are interested in dedicating themselves to the work of spirituality – how do you make a living of it and still stay true? I think people are beginning to realize what an urgent question this is. Yeah. Um, I've seen at least one book title by a Buddhist author who's trying to struggle with this because in, in Buddhist traditions in particular, um, there are some deep skepticisms about money as such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important for us not to get moralistic and personal because the deep changes that are required are structural. So, mm, mm. you know, the, the 2,000 people I spoke of yesterday that own more wealth collectively than 4.6 billion people yes. are the ones we should be worrying about. I, I'm going to, and a structure that produces those people, right? So that structure would be rather happy for us to be obsessed with our paper cups because it doesn't ask what is the structure that produces 2,000 people who have more wealth than 4.6 billion. So um, I, I want to ask questions about faithfulness and integrity and, and, and whether my life is in keeping with the principles I espouse without question. But I'm also mindful that even that can take my eye off the ball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there is a long tradition in Christianity that the the worker has to be paid, right? Right. Including the spiritual worker, and Saint Paul says as much, right? So I think that is something that all of us, particularly those who don't have in, an institutional structure where salaries are paid, mm -hmm. do have to to hustle for. The question is, what happens to us in that process? What are we saying about money? What are we saying about the structures? Mm. Um, and, and how are we collaborating with or seeking to undo 
even as we profit from current structures. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any way that we can't simultaneously profit from structures we're seeking to undo. That, that literally is the contradiction <laughs> wow. we are going to have to inhabit. And so a kind of moralistic puritanism can lead to a certain kind of idealism that is just completely out of touch with what is in fact possible for anyone mm -hmm. to accomplish. Um, and, and, and so how do we deal with the complexities and the moral ambiguities without reconciling ourselves to them so easily that we become uncritical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nonetheless, the real questions we have to ask is, how is capitalism telling us that the worth of anything can be measured, anything and everything can be measured by the dollar? What is not subjectable to that measurement? Should housing be? Should medicine be? Mm. Right? Those kinds of core questions about what ought not to be under the rule of the almighty dollar. That's what we should be asking. Right, right. Wow. That was an amazing response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you my C-spot run uh, answer here. <laughs> um, I wonder if this question was specifically apply, applied to things like, you know, pastors asking for money and tithing and things like that. Right, um, like visit I, our Patreon Yeah, page. yeah, and, and I get it, and it's cool. And like you said, you know, people need to make a living and uh, be honored for their work, whether it's spiritual or not, although I suppose we would agree all work is spiritual in some sense. Do you guys follow Preachers and Sneakers? Oh, yeah, uh, Instagram yeah. Instagram feed? Uh-huh. David, uh -huh. you must, right? I, I don't follow it. I know what it is. I've seen it. Yes. Okay, you can't bring yourself to follow it. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm going to actually, so I am, this is, finish your point, and then I'm I'm so excited for it, because I'm, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, which means if if I see a big red button and someone like is like, you can't push that, I'm like, I'll argue that. So I'm ready. I'm ready. Oh, my gosh. Well, again, I don't have anything super profound to say, but um, this, again, super complex. I don't think there are easy answers to it. But I, th I do think when you're doing full-time spiritual work that you should be a little bit more careful in how you show off uh, perhaps your money. That's what I say today. I don't know if I'm going to say tomorrow or the next day. And that's the only reason why I even bring up preachers. One, I find it hilarious. But two, I'm like, all right, um, can we put a cap at like 750 per pair of sneakers? Maybe not like 1,200. Or if you want to wear them, like wear them off duty. Like don't wear them on a Sunday. Like enjoy the Gucci, but maybe not like in your promotional headshot that's like um, you know so uh, <laughs> you know it's stuff like that where I'm like God, I just and, and it's not like I don't wear labels I certainly do so like I'm I'm part of that but I, I just think it's it's really complex and, and when you're you're making your own money in a for profit system I don't know do we judge it differently than you know someone who's wearing Louis Vuitton on stage because they're being supported by people's hard earned money who make a fraction of what they do I, I kind of know but I don't know I don't want to say that. anyway <laughs> Anyway, David, okay. go for it. David, okay, I'll you're going to be the last one. So. Okay, I'll try to do this as fast as I can. Okay. The idea of what the story of Christ and the story of Jesus being what Jesus accomplishes through the death and resurrection is it first appeals on a universal level and then personally we experience it. Meaning Jesus comes not to just forgive the racist, he comes to destroy racism itself. Jesus comes not to just heal the one sick person, but destroy sickness or death or the story of that. Now, 
Within that in mind, I think there's a huge part for specifically mythology in our context here. What do I mean by that? If I was going to, I've seen a test done where they, they have like three sets of dots, right? So you've got these dots and they go connect each dot with four lines. It's impossible to do unless you go, there's a little box around outside of the box yeah. so that you can connect the dots, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Outside of the box, we have things that don't make sense. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the language of the demonic. Yes. <laughs> so now, let's go. our warfare against <laughs> flesh and blood, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against what? The powers, the principalities, all uh-huh. these things that we can use mythic language that are really important to understand what I believe you were speaking about, which are there are powers that are so much bigger than the individual that we need to talk about yes. these powers, Preach right? It. Now, however, <laughs> this is where I'd be like, okay, so if they have flesh and blood, my struggle is not to fight against them, it's to fight for them. I have to speak truth yes. to that power, yeah. but I need to name the demonic and also realize that it exists and that I do it within. So this is where I'll connect it with liturgy. Every week, my church, which is a post-evangelical church that does a lot of liturgy, one of our liturgies that we say <laughs> every week, one of the liturgies it. that we say every week is we get up and we say, godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world. We take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the hu- human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. Why does that liturgy matter? Mm-hmm. Because we are a people Beautiful. of generosity that are constantly going, what is generosity? Is it the tithe 10% and this is how you make it? No. What I'm talking about is the people that I know that actually freak me out about money are people like Scott Harrison who has charity water, who goes, I am going to use a capitalistic thing, which is like, what happens with charities when you give money to charity? It's kind of hidden about where does this stuff go? He goes, every dollar that's given is given 100% to clean water. Not only that, if you give a credit card and you pay a dollar on your credit card, guess what? The credit card takes part of that. So he has a thing called the well, which they cover all the credit card costs. So my point is this. One is clarity. Being upfront about your finances, being upfront about that. Two is radical generosity within a system to change it that goes, I know a lot of people that give 80% Mm -hmm. and live on 20%. We are a people that we have to speak about the powers and the principalities and the darkness and the inequality and injustice. However, I also have to go, I live in that world all the time. Can I reimagine? And for a community of faith, that has to be reimagined to be a people of generosity. So I do want to still go the human heart, even though it's easy to go. It's just the powers. Yeah. But how am I playing a part in that power? And so I got to come back to repentance and I got to come back to liturgy and I got to come back to, yeah, even religion. Wow. That'll <laughs> preach. Three preach. theologians in the room. Wow. Okay. So, so this is where we have to wrap yeah. it up. So thank you so much. Maria, what thank you. John, thank you. David, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for making last night such a tremendous success. Um, so, folks, Radical Love Live. Uh, enjoy the live event when we get it posted up on the website. Also, of course, this podcast will be edited and uh, soon available on Apple and on Spotify as well. So. Yes, and if you're in New York City, the next event is February 23rd, so we hope to see you there.